Hello and welcome to Meet the Education Researcher. This is a podcast from the Faculty of Education, Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. Hello, my name is Neil Selwyn and in this episode of Meet the Education Researcher, I'm talking with Christo Sims. Christo is an assistant professor from the University of California, San Diego, where he works in a communication school. Now, Christo is not an education researcher. He's an ethnographer, he's an anthropologist, he works in critical design studies. But he has been involved in a long-term ethnographic study of a really innovative high-tech school in New York City. Now, this resulted in an excellent book, and that's since gone on to win much acclaim and a few awards. So he's a great person to chat to about the art of ethnographic research, and also how we can research and think about the topic of innovation and change in education. So here we are, in the corner of a bar in Copenhagen. You know, I came to ethnography originally um, partly after feeling somewhat unsatisfied with some other approaches that I'd been trained in. So as an undergrad, I was actually an economics major and early in grad school, I was still taking statistics classes as well as doing more qualitative work. Yeah. And I just, um, you know, particularly uh, with economics, I just I never really bought the theory. It just didn't match up with my own experiences of everyday life. And I think when I discovered ethnography, I was like, okay, well, here's at least a method that's trying to grapple with the messiness of what life feels like on the ground. So, I mean, this might be a stupid question, but what is it that ethnography does that statistics don't? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I think the problem with, uh, or one problem with a lot of methods that are maybe a little bit more removed or more abstracted is that your your view of the world and what's going on is mediated through these instruments that uh, often leave out a lot of what's actually happening. Mm. So, um, you know, if you do a study that's like based on survey research, you have to kind of anticipate ahead of time in designing the survey what types of questions are going to matter or not, and then how do you get people to answer that. Um, with ethnography, you might discover that things you never considered to be important at all are actually very important very salient to people on the ground and are actually shaping the uh, phenomenon that you're curious about. So I think it's a good corrective to uh, a tendency for kind of over-abstract and over-technical approaches to knowledge production. So what classic ethnographies did you kind of come across when you started learning your trade, when you started turning your back on economics and looking at ethnography? I mean, what previous work caught your attention? Well, I took a class early in grad school uh, that was actually very intimidating Uh, with Jean Lave, who Mm -hmm. a lot of your listeners would know. Um, And she was filling in for a professor in my department who'd gotten sick. And her basic approach was we read five ethnographies twice over the course of the semester, and then one you had to read three times. So one of those was uh, learning to labor by chance. I hadn't actually started doing any research around education or in schools yet, um, but that just was one of the ethnographies we read. Um, So that had a big impact. Another one was a science and technology studies one called Beam Times and Lifetimes. I don't know if you're familiar mm-hmm. with that, uh, Sharon Trawig. And then uh, one called Deadly Words about witchcraft in France. Um, so those were my first sort of academic. I, I don't think I understood fully what I was reading what at the time. What an amazing substitute teacher to have, though. Yeah. In terms of learning to labor then, I mean, what, what was it that you remember that really kind of caught you about that? Again, I think the attention to detail in this, amongst the lads in particular, where you really felt like you had a sense for what was going on in their lives and how Mm. these people were understanding the world and acting creatively within it. 
And I had grown up in a in a rural area uh, of the United States that had a lot of more working class uh, kids, and I was more on this college-bound track and so forth. So I think it actually helped me understand uh, puzzles in my own life of like what happened with these kids who I knew were very smart, um, who I had known growing up, who maybe didn't go to college and were ending up in more kind of working class, blue collar uh, life trajectories. And so I think that book really kind of opened my eyes in a way that felt uh, very real compared to people that I that I knew pretty and well. Made you reflect on your own status as a, an earl, I think was the phrase you yeah, used for exactly. the exactly <laughs> a proud earl. Exactly. So I mean, talking about education, it's become quite fashionable in education research now to do a few observations of a classroom or a quick focus group and then call it an ethnographic study. But I mean, what is it that you, in your opinion, makes for proper ethnography and something that's actually worthy of the name? Yeah, you know, this is again one of these things that. Uh, particularly in anthropology, gets uh, debated a lot. And I think because the method developed originally in anthropology, but has since traveled and been mm. taken up in all these different disciplines, um, there's been uh, some resistance to that in anthropology. And I definitely am sympathetic to their arguments. Um, I think for me, well, a couple things. One is ethnography itself is actually a writing practice. I think what people are actually interested in is participant observation. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that tends to get kind of folded into ethnography and it's just assumed to be the same thing, but they're not. Um, for me, it's about uh, how much confidence do I have in what this account uh, is saying and how it holds up to being true or feeling closer to true and believable. And for me, uh, I think, a long, again, the kind of duration and amount of time you have to spend actually participating in these worlds, not just dropping in for, yeah, yeah. for, for a couple of weeks or something. Obviously, though, what you can do is going to be shaped by all the pragmatic circumstances in your own life, right? So it's great if you can get the opportunity to go do field work nonstop for 12 uh, months or a year and a half, but I, I'm also aware a lot of people can't do that. So it's interesting you refer to ethnography as a writing practice. You don't often hear people in education talking about that. Well, I mean, just literally the term yeah. means writing about people, but um, there's a couple different points where I think writing for me has been an important part of the method. Um, one is writing field notes, which actually doesn't get talked about that no, much no, at no. all. Um, and for me, that was actually a very critical part of the process. Um, in part because it forced me to slow down and really think about in detail what had been going on in that previous session of participant observation. And all these things that you maybe aren't thinking are that important in the moment, and you're already kind of predisposed to think, these are the moments I want to see. But when you have to kind of go through and try to really write down everything that you saw happen, it's a kind of first pass at analysis too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so that's part of it. And then obviously there's the whole kind of politics of representation part of writing and what does it mean to produce knowledge and who are you to say uh, and why is your vo voice treated as the authoritative account here. Um, so there's a whole bunch of political issues uh, that come up in the around writing ethnographies yeah, as well. particularly in schools. I mean, let's talk about your ethnographic study, the sure. one that's making your name disruptive fixation, school reform and the pitfalls of techno-idealism. So, I mean, what's the elevator pitch for this book? <laughs> The elevator pitch, I guess, so it is based on a long-term ethnographic project um, that was focused on a fairly ambitious and well-intentioned but tech-centric uh, school reform project in New York City. Um, the elevator pitch I, I usually tell people is that, uh, you know, a lot of things didn't go as planned. Um, they ran into a lot of challenges, 
And if you look at the history of ed tech, this is not surprising at all. So the elevator pitch I tend to give people is that what I try to get at in the book is instead of just focusing on, well, why did this particular experiment not work? Maybe it's more interesting to start asking, why is it that we keep trying this approach to get at social outcomes that a lot of people want to see, but we seem kind of uh, repeatedly steering back towards now that we have this new technical tool, we can finally fix our schools. Because I mean, the actual school you were looking at was quite quite an experiment, wasn't it? What I call the downtown school. Um, their main sort of innovation was to was in the realm of pedagogy, and was to try to treat the whole curriculum as a game. So the way that was designed to work out is that in every class at the beginning of each, I guess, trimester there would be a sort of fictional scenario that the students would be uh, recruited into that would then frame their activities for the rest of that trimester. Um, So it could be that uh, in the math class, you're actually applying to join a code-breaking academy and becoming a member of this code-breaking academy, um, to just give one example. And it was very influenced by ideas about games and learning, particularly video games and learning from like Jim G and others. so they tried to actually implement that in an actual school, um, in public school in New York. So I mean, without kind of going through the whole books, obviously people can read it and, and buy it as well. I mean, what were the key insights that you gained about school reform and innovation and disruption? And <laughs> the key insights, I guess, maybe I can tell you the main questions I explored in terms of the answers. I'm a reluctant to make it too pithy because I do think Again, with ethnography, there's part a whole of, book to be read. Yeah, yeah, and I don't. That's not to try to push sales of the book, but more to say that uh, I think there's an understandable desire to look for kind of simple explanations mm. for these things. Uh, I mean, I can give you a quick version of it, but again, I think the interesting questions to me are: this doesn't ever seem to work. If you look at the history of uh, kind of enthusiasm that continuously happens around the new media technologies of the moment and their potential for education reform. So why and how is it that this, what I refer to as techno-idealism, continues to get regenerated? So how do we actually explain that? Um, Additionally, a lot of these projects end up reverting more towards the mean, as Larry Cuban would say, or towards the status quo. So again, how does that happen? Um, We can see without doing a year, you know, multiple years of ethnography that it does happen, but how? How does that actually come to be? So that's another question the book looks at. And then the final one is, um, and I, I really took inspiration in this regard from um, some critical ethnographies of international development, and particularly uh, James Ferguson's anti-politics machine, looking at uh, not just, well, why did this particular project not work as planned and what can you do differently next time, but instead to maybe look at, well, what is it that is being produced or what yeah, is yeah. being accomplished even when things don't uh, succeed in, in in reaching their well-intentioned ends. Um, and I think once you make that shift and start asking those questions, it opens up a whole different uh, realm of things to look at. It becomes a much more of a political question. Um, and it's not just who benefits in a material way, but also uh, you know that these uh, projects, even that quote-unquote fail, uh, are quite productive in other ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, so. I always say that the best thing you can do is research is come up with better questions. So I've got, Absolutely. No, got no problem with that. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's what you learned about the school. What did you learn about ethnography from doing the project? Definitely a lot. I mean, there's a kind of, uh, it's almost a, a cliche uh, amongst anthropologist friends that you really can't learn ethnography mm. from books and from yeah. classrooms. You have to go do it. 
And, you know, I'd worked on some qualitative research projects before doing it, and I felt not completely naive going into the field. But um, I think you really don't get a handle on these things that you've read about until you're in the situation. Um, so I think one, again, is this idea that you just have to be open to stuff that you don't anticipate yeah. being important or on your radar. Um, and I think that that ended up being hugely uh, significant to my project, but also uh, to the, again, types of questions you might ask. So your questions might change by way of doing field work. The actors and variables that you think are important, the processes that you think are important, all that can change quite a bit in the course of doing field work. Yeah, you've got to be ready to be surprised. Ready to be surprised and also the fact that ready to feel uh, dumb is not the right word, but yeah, th yeah. you really don't know what's going on. And it's a humbling experience, I yeah. think. So. Yeah. Now, I just want to finish with a couple of questions looking at the past and looking at the future. Sure, and I mean, sure. in terms of the past, actually, in your previous life, you were working in the field of user experience design. I'm just wondering, what were you doing and how did that work shape what you're doing now? Yeah. I mean, that's, yeah, it's, it's definitely how I ended up doing uh, the type of work that I've ended up doing academically. So, uh, I mean, and part of it is a temporal thing. I graduated from undergraduate in 2000, and the dot-com bubble was still <laughs> kicking just enough that somebody with a liberal arts degree could get into this, you know, tech industry um, kind of field without, again, knowing much at all about what he, I was actually doing. Um, so I ended up working uh, for an agency that was a marketing agency that just worked with nonprofits uh, right after college. And they wanted to start doing, they were working with big enough nonprofits to do marketing campaigns, museums and hospitals yeah. and colleges and universities and things like that. So they wanted to start doing digital media stuff and didn't have anybody doing that. So I was hired to kind of manage those projects. And we ended up partnering with a, a group of uh, recent graduates from Rhode Island School of Design, which is a, a good design school on the East Coast of uh, the United States. They had just formed this company called Tellart. And I basically spent my first five years after college working uh, almost all the time with them on these various kind of interactive media projects. A lot of them were web-based, but we would continuously be trying to push uh, the kind of limits of what was possible at yeah, that yeah. moment, um, which back then was trying to figure out how to bring multimedia and animation and more interactivity into storytelling onto the web in a way that could be ex you know, accessed on a modem and things like that. Yeah, yeah. I liked working with the designers and learning a lot about design from them, but I didn't really like marketing. Yeah, so yeah. that's how I ended up in grad school. And I had learned about ethnography actually from the design world because in kind of uh, in design agencies and whatnot, there's been one of these appropriations, probably not unlike the one that's happened in um, educational research of ethnography, where you'll have firms do these kind of short-term ethnographies mm. as part of, say, a product development cycle or as a way to try to figure out what type of service uh, you might design for XY audience. Um, so that's what I thought I was going to do originally and then started learning more about PhD programs and that you didn't have to pay for them and that you could dig into these much bigger, thornier kind of questions than you could in a short-term yeah, project. Yeah, yeah. So. so you went, went back to the source. I mean, that's what you came from, looking to the future. What are you working on now? I mean, you've done digital school reform. The project I've been working on uh, most recently picks up on part of the last project, so particularly this theme of technological idealism um, but it's more of a historical project. And then focusing on the San Francisco Bay Area post-World War II, leading into uh, 
you know, what we now think of as Silicon Valley. But where did this kind of idealism come from in a very place-based particular way and finding interesting connections to the 19th century and romanticism uh, being kind of regenerated in the 20th century um, in all sorts of interesting and, and weird ways. So, this is archival work? Yeah, it's mostly archival. I think I will do some uh, ethnographic components towards the end of more what I see it after I kind of trace the history, the cultural history, trying to see what I think of as contemporary examples of this. Well, thanks ever so much for doing this, Christo. Yeah, I appreciate no you taking the time to talk. Good luck in all the future. Work. All right, thanks. You too.